Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that this morning would be an encouragement to us. I pray that you would speak to us and help us to love you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me that you've slept through your alarm and you're running far behind schedule. You're going to be late for work or for that important meeting, which started five minutes ago now, and you've got no time for brekkie, so you hop out of bed, you chuck on some clothes, and you run full speed out the front door. You head for the car, go to open it, but it's locked. So you turn back around to grab your keys, and you've just locked yourself out of the house as well. And that's the start to Monday morning. Can you relate in some way? If you've locked yourself out of the house, the next thing you need to do is find a way back in. I mean, you aren't going to call anybody for help. That would be embarrassing. You're determined to get back in, and you think to yourself, yeah, I can solve this problem. The issue is you can't find an open window anywhere, so jumping the fence won't help. Uh, Yelling, perhaps even crying loudly, doesn't get anyone's attention. And worst of all, You know that these days, you won't make it through that tiny doggy door. It's not going to (laughs) happen. You're not going to make it. When all your attempts to get back in don't work, there comes a point where you've got to call for help. You've got to call on someone else to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And this morning, I want to discourage us from trying to find our own way out of the mess we can often find ourselves in. And instead, call for help. Call on Jesus, the one who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Today, we are exploring how to fight the idols that fight you. And we'll be looking at the story of the golden calf found in Exodus 32. There are three points for us to note this morning. The first is the calf, then the consequence, and then the cross. The calf the consequence, and the cross. And I hope that we would be encouraged as we learn a lesson from the Israelites and hear the call of God to us to keep ourselves from idols. The first thing to see is the calf. Well, let's set the scene as we look at verse 1. Moses has led the Israelites across the hot sands to Sinai, which is a gigantic mountain in the desert. And Moses, he's gone up the mountain And he's still up there receiving instructions from God. And in the meantime, all the people down below had to do was sit and wait for Moses to get back. Moses is gone for 40 days. And as we see in verse 1, they get a little impatient and they start making some demands. Verse 1 tells us, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. And said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't really know what has happened to him. Maybe Moses is dead, they might have thought. I mean, it has been 40 days and we can't sit here forever. Tired of waiting, they come up with their own solution to the problem. They make an idol something that they can see, something that they can touch. 
And Aaron becomes their accomplice in this and makes for them, in verse 4, an idol in the shape of a golden calf. Not only this, but the people bow down to it and sacrifice to it and end up having some sort of drunken orgy in verse 6. Their hearts are far away from the God who loves and rescues them. And their actions clearly reflect this. Now last week I mentioned that I might look a little bit like Tom Cruise. And I gave you permission to tell me otherwise, which you did. And I was chatting to someone after the service who said, Mark, I can tell you that you definitely don't look like Tom Cruise. But you do have something in common. And so I asked him, oh, what's that? And the response was, you're both below average in height. (laughs) I don't really know how to take that. It felt like a bit of a backhanded compliment there. Um, Yeah, I wasn't too sure. Now, whether or not I'm as handsome as Tom Cruise uh, doesn't really matter. And believe it or not, I still somehow managed to get a girlfriend back when I was in high school. And I'll admit, It wasn't one of my best decisions. It wasn't great for me at the time. Um, But despite the height issues, that's what happened. And I kid you not, we, we, we dated for a number of months before we eventually broke up. And less than a week later after breaking up, she was dating someone else. And I was devastated. I mean, I couldn't handle it. And I arrogantly thought to myself, really, we break up. You leave me, and then you start dating this guy. Again, I arrogantly thought this. But maybe God felt like this when he saw his people so quickly give their affections over to some dumb metal calf who, in comparison to him, is absolutely nothing. The Israelites have broken the very first and the very clear command that God gave them in Exodus 20, verse 3. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. And God makes this clear to them. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The Israelites are committing clear blatant, outrageous idolatry. And read with me God's response to all this in verse 9. He says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make you into a great nation. God tells Moses he's going to come down and he's going to wipe them out because of their idolatry. And Moses responds back to God by interceding for them in verse 11 to 13. Moses says in verse 13, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land that I promised them. It will be their inheritance forever. uh, Moses reminds God of the promises that he made to them. And in verse 14, God graciously relents, not bringing disaster on his people. 
The picture here is of Moses standing before God as a representative of the people down below. And Moses then in verse 15 heads back down the mountain to now stand before the people as a representative of God above. And Moses, he sees the idolatry for himself and he's furious. He smashes the stone tablets and he confronts Aaron in verse 21. What's going on here? What happened? Why did you do this? And Aaron's defense is laughable. Verse 22. Do not be angry at me, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. Don't blame me. They came up with the idea. Verse 24. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and voila, out came this calf. It's clearly a poor excuse by Aaron. This is neither Aaron's nor Israel's finest moment, is it? This event is shocking. I mean, how could God's people behave like this? Verse 25 tells us that they were, they were running wild. They're completely out of control. And to really grasp the shocking effect which this story is meant to have on us, we need to remember what has happened leading up to this point. As we saw last week, God was at work to rescue his people out of, from under the tyranny of Pharaoh. He was to raise Moses up and use Moses to lead them from bondage to freedom. God then spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He gradually broke Pharaoh's spirit through ten devastating plagues. He led his people through the wilderness by massive cloud and fire pillars. God provided water from a rock, food from heaven, split the Red Sea, and then this happens. I mean, God worked through these amazing and frankly unimaginable acts of deliverance for these people. And yet, even after such high and lofty experiences of grace, they so quickly turned their backs on God. And give in to their sinful desires. It's outrageous. And this story, it reveals something to us. It reveals the heart of the problem. Which is the problem of the heart. You see, even though the Israelites at this point have been externally, that is physically removed out of Egypt they actually still have that same old idolatrous heart within them. The point is that the external move out of Egypt did not change their hearts. And this is why God calls the Israelites, in verse 9, a stiff-necked people. They are stiff-necked. Their hearts are just like the Pharaoh, prone to evil. And sadly for us today, we have the same heart issue. This is so important because this reveals to us that we are not only victims of the sin and brokenness of this world, as we looked at last week. We are also perpetrators of evil. We are contributors to the brokenness and the chaos of this world. We are, by default, idol worshippers. We worship created things rather than the creator of things. And we struggle with idolatry. Often 
Our idols tend to be the things we count as most important to us. In fact, anything can be an idol. It could be popularity, people-pleasing, or approval. It could be money in the bank, sex and pleasure, our children. It might be health and physical appearance, even a romantic relationship. Now notice, all the things I just mentioned, they are good things. But as Tim Keller points out, an idol is a good thing turned into an ultimate thing. Tim Keller points out that an idol is anything in your life that is so central to you that you couldn't have a meaningful life without it. Idols do to our emotions what a cup of coffee would do to a four-year-old. It makes them go berserk. I mean, they lead us away from God in both our hearts, our imaginations, our emotions, and our actions, as is clearly seen in the Israelites. And if you're sitting here today and you're a bit unsure of what an idol might be in your life, then ask yourself, is there anything so important to me that it takes up most of my imagination? What is something I feel like I must have, must own, must look like, must achieve, must be before I will ever be truly happy? Your answer is your idol. The story of the golden calf reveals to us the heart problem of the people of God. A heart problem that we have today as well. And this leads me to my second point. The consequence. We're going, to, we're going to investigate the consequence. I mean, what happens as a result of Israel's idolatry here? They face a devastating consequence. Moses tells the people in verse 27, Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The, Israel, the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. I mean, I could imagine that this might have made the Christmas family lunch a little bit awkward that year. But in reality, if we think about it, 3,000 people died as a result of their idolatry. And in verse 35, God strikes them with a, a plague. The point is clear. Sin is serious. The wages of sin is death, as Romans 6 tells us. We are meant to sit and reflect on the devastating consequence of sin. The end result of our idolatry is death. Eternal separation from a loving and a good God forever, with no second chances, no do-overs. But thankfully, our story doesn't end there, does it? What happens the next day is that Moses, he makes a trip back up the mountain. Because in his mind, what needs to happen next is that atonement needs to be made. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, 
You have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I mean, Moses sees atonement as the only viable option out of the mess that they're in. And the word atonement carries with it the idea of making right what is wrong by covering the cost of our rebellion. It's a restorative idea where you put right what has been made wrong. You make amends. You restore what is broken by bearing a personal cost. And what's interesting here is that Moses heads up the mountain in the hopes that he can perhaps make atonement for sin. Did you notice that language? The reality is, atonement isn't made in this part of the story for the people. They are not completely destroyed, and Moses doesn't meet his end either. What Moses does is he puts all of his eggs into one basket. Moses knows he cannot pay for the sins of the people. He cannot cover their sins. He's not righteous. And so he puts all of his hopes onto the faithfulness of the God who can. And if we follow the, the rest of the Israelite story throughout the whole of the Old Testament, what we will find is that God has much to say about the idea of atonement for sins. However, the climax of this story, which we're about to explore now, is found in Jesus. And this leads me to my final point. We have seen the calf, which reveals to us the heart problem of the people of God. We've seen that idolatry leads to death. There is deadly consequence for sin. And the final point is now to see the reality of the cross. Thousands of years later, Jesus shows up on the scene. And he shows up with a radical message of forgiveness and atonement for sin. Jesus knows that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Of course, we are physically alive. I mean, we can still eat and talk and jump. But in our nature, we are dead to God. As Rory Shiner puts it, we are as likely to respond to God as a dead body is likely to dance to YMCA. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need new life. We need new hearts. And the Apostle John, who is one of the New Testament writers, he, he says this in 1 John 5.11. He says that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John is saying that life, eternal life, is found in Jesus and he tells us a few verses earlier in 1 John 4.11 that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the one who makes atonement for our idolatry. Jesus took on himself the deadly consequences of our sin. Jesus interceded for us as a worthy sacrifice. And as the better Moses, he gave his life for us. And he rose again. 
And in the resurrection of Jesus, God solidified the promise that if we come to him, we will receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. And this is really important because the gospel message is not get your heart right in order that you might come to God. That's what religion tells us. The gospel message is come to God in order that you might have your heart set right. Because Jesus really is the only solution to the idolatry of the human heart. And in his death, he atones for our sins. And John also tells us this, just a few verses later. He says that God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. This is really important. We don't want to miss this. See, Jesus not only deals with the mess that our hearts create by shedding his blood on the cross, God also goes one step further and he gives us his Holy Spirit to indwell our hearts. We are given the Holy Spirit and he makes all the difference here. Now, I moved out of home a little while ago and I've been on a bit of a journey to learn as many new life lessons and skills as possible. And one of the more embarrassing lessons I'll admit to learning is that a very hot glass lid and very cold water don't go well together. And I'm not sure how much baking or cooking I'll be doing going forward. And if I serve you any food, eat at your own risk. I can say that. Another thing that I've come to see is that having the Holy Spirit in us, it's like when you make biscuits. What I mean by that is when you mix the flour and the sugar in all the ingredients in a bowl and you mix them up, what happens? They become completely connected. You can't separate the flour from the sugar anymore. It's completely united. They're inseparable. And if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you have been united to Jesus. You have been inseparably connected with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The result of this is that we are made new. See how we are described in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. What happens when we believe and receive the good news of Jesus is that we are made new at a heart level through the Holy Spirit. He makes all the difference here. So what are we meant to do with all this new information? What are we meant to do with it? How is it meant to affect us so that it doesn't just stay as information but becomes transformation? Well, I have two points for us by way of application. The first is to keep trusting Christ. Keep trusting Christ. Perhaps you are sitting here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you know that just like the Israelites, you've experienced extraordinary amounts of God's grace. And yet, there are still so many times where you so quickly run off to the idols and the created things, deserting God. But let's take a moment. Let's reflect on that especially dark pocket of your life. 
Maybe you and God only know about it. This could be a struggle with drugs, alcohol, or pornography. Maybe it's your constant battle with pride or apathy. It could be greed or gluttony, filthy language, lying, cheating, or a persistent struggle with selfishness or anger. What should you do when you find yourself running back to that same old idol again and again and again? The first thing to do is keep trusting Christ. Because in these moments, yes, even these moments, we have a God who will never leave and he will never forsake us. There really is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In the wonderful words of Dane Ortland, he says, because of Christ, we can feel free not to minimize our sin or excuse it away. Simply take it to Jesus. Do not let your unrighteousness, your horrible habits, or your darkness drive you away from Jesus in shame. You are a great sinner. So am I. But please know that there is more mercy in him than there is sin in you. So keep trusting Christ. The second thing to do is to consider how you fight. Interestingly, John ends his letter with these words in 1 John 5, 21. These are the last words in his letter. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. There's an expectation that this is going to be an ongoing struggle for us. I understand that there is a battle taking place and it can be a hard and a grueling battle at times. And so a good question to ask ourselves is, how are you fighting? I mean, what tactics and methods are you using to fight the idols that fight you? Just like trying to solve the issue of being trapped outside of the house, we can try and come up with our own solution to our sin battles at times. When we find ourselves falling again and again and again, we can try and come up with our own solution to the problem. And this is where we fall into one of two traps, either despair or legalism. We sometimes unknowingly use despair and legalism as a means to somehow help us win our sin battles. Despair says to us, you know, if I feel really, really bad enough about my sin, then maybe eventually I'll change. It's a form of self-punishment. Often those of us struggling with despair withdraw, hide away from others in shame. Or we can fall into the trap of thinking that I'm too unworthy to serve, too unworthy to lead others. Or maybe I shouldn't even go into ministry at all. I can't hold this ministry position. God could never use me. That's what despair says to us. That if we could really feel the sting of our sin, maybe we would be driven to change. The other method is legalism. And this is where we are constantly focusing on the do's and don'ts. And we're so consumed with every little action in ourselves and others. We become so focused on our outward actions that we forget about the inner state of our hearts and intentions. 
if we're honest, we live in fear of the next time we're going to slip up. We can have an expectation that we should be living a sinless life. And often those of us who struggle with legalism tend to be ungracious towards those in the midst of their sin battles. So if legalism and despair don't work, what will? Remember that the Holy Spirit makes all the difference here. When in Jesus we are brought to new life, we are given his Holy Spirit. And this means that the fight, the battle, it's not a losing fight. It's not a losing battle. We have a faithful friend who is now with us in the fight, who will supply us with the power we need. And really, most importantly, he will remind us of the grace and mercy and forgiveness readily available at the foot of the cross. He makes all the difference here. And so we have seen and explored the story of the golden calf, which reveals to us our heart problem. And we have explored the consequence that idolatry leads to death. And without Jesus, we will face the deadly consequence of our sin. And we have seen the reality of the cross. That the gospel is the only solution to the idolatry of the human heart. Because in the gospel, we receive atonement for sins and we are given the Holy Spirit who will help us in the battle. And the takeaway for us to know is that if the gospel is the only solution to the idolatry of the human heart, then the gospel is also the only thing that will continue to transform our hearts. So let's keep trusting Christ, knowing there is nothing you could ever do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less. And consider how you fight. Don't try and solve the problem yourself. For through the gospel you were saved, and through the gospel you will be transformed. So by way of challenge to you this morning... I would ask that you spend a bit of time in prayer now before we stand up and sing. Let's pray and let's ask God to reveal to our hearts our idols. Ask God to make you aware of them. And then confess, repent, and once again believe on the Son that His grace is sufficient for you. Amen.